This is episode 394 for November 2015, and I had a chance to visit the Wizard World Tulsa Comic Con and interview one of my heroes. I've been wanting to interview Jim Shooter, I guess, for 30 years, ever since I first saw his picture in the letter pages of a Marvel comic, and he wrote Secret Wars. I mean, that's one of my all-time favorite stories. And he also, in this interview, has a very cool Ditko story, so listen for that. Before we get to the interview, I want to ask for your support of this website and our podcast. Log on to our front page at SpidermanCrawlspace.com. Look on the right-hand side for a button that says Support This Site via PayPal, and you can help us pay the bandwidth costs it takes to support all these episodes up on iTunes and our server for you to download. All right, gang, on to one of my heroes, Jim Shooter. Hey, Carl Spacers, we're here with uh, Jim Shooter, editor from 78, is that right? Yes. To 87. 87. And uh, one of my, when I heard you were coming to Tulsa, you were the first person I signed up to come. Yeah, I'm just a big fan. Oh, thank you. Very- you. You were the first editor I ever saw a picture of in a comic. <laughs> well, I'm Stan. Stan put his picture, uh, and then Steve and Jack. At, in, in an, I think it was in an annual early on, so it wasn't a, it wasn't groundbreaking. But, but we felt like you know like, like it would be good for people to sort of know who they were dealing with. Exactly. <laughs> Talk, I, I always like to start at the beginning with your first exposure to Spider-Man. Were you how old were you? Or were, do you remember your first comic? Yeah, I was 12 years old. I was uh, in the hospital for minor surgery, and then a kid's ward in the hospital in those days. There were stacks of comic books everywhere and uh, the interesting thing was uh, there were DC comics and I'd stopped reading comics when I was like 8 you know I mean I got bored with them and uh, uh, so this is when I was 12 I guess it was uh, 63 and so I looked around and there were all these DC comics and they were all in kind of pristine condition you know I looked through a few of them and then there were all these dog-eared, ratty, you know, red-to-death Marvel comics. Yeah. And I thought, what's up with these, you know? So I, the, I think the first uh, Spider-Man I read uh, had, uh, I think it was issue seven, maybe, The Vulture. Yeah, it was just, yeah, yeah, it was great. And, um, and there were other, so I, there were other back issues there that I, I read. And, uh, and then I went out and started trying to hunt them down because I liked them so much. It was harder to do back then. No, I didn't even know there were comic book conventions till 1973. I had no idea. I didn't know. Um, I lived in Pittsburgh. Uh, there, there. This is way before there were comic book shops. So what you did is you, you went to the to the drugstore and and you got what what they had. The distribution was pretty spotty, but there were places that would sell comics with the covers half torn off and stuff like that and i just wanted to read them so i'd, I'd buy them anyway they were in nickel so you know I'd, I'd buy those so you you became the editor in 78 from what from the history i've read marvel was in tough shape in 78 is that right very tough shape i mean uh, i started there as an editor in 1976 and then in 1978 i became editor-in-chief uh and at that time marvel was losing money uh uh, we were in bad shape, and you know it was, it was owned by a small conglomerate. And it, basically, if it if we continued to lose money, they just would have shut it down. They didn't have any need to you know publish comics. Uh, the person who deserves credit for saving Marvel in those rough years, '76 uh, through '78, uh, is Roy Thomas, because Roy, you know, he, he wanted to do Star Wars, and no one at the company wanted to do the Star Wars adaptation. Uh, I didn't know. I, I was ambivalent. Um, 
Uh, but Roy, you know, he stamped his feet and held his breath till he turned blue. And finally he got his way, and we did Star Wars. And Star Wars all by itself kept Marvel alive from 1977 through 1978 until I could get it turned around. <laughs> Was Spider-Man in rough shape also? Was his books not selling in 78? None of, the bo- none of the books were selling. Basically, there was no direct market. There was just the beginning of the direct market and, and a very small sales through the direct market. I'm talking like 700 copies for you know an issue or something like that. So almost everything was newsstand, and the percentage of sale in the newsstand just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. Not so much because the books weren't selling. It's just because the... Honestly, the ID wholesalers just kept cheating more and more and more, you know, because it was affidavit returns by then. They didn't have to show you any proof. They would just, you'd send them 5,000 books and they'd tell you they sold 500, you know, and then, they, and, and meanwhile, they really sold 3,000. So they just, that's just pure profit. And they'd only pay for the 500, you know. So, I mean, there was that kind of deal going on, and, and it just, it, it basically each, each, each month it seemed like they were trying to cheat us just a little more, a little more, a little more. And that's why it was great that the direct market arose then. And it was probably one reason the direct market arose, because you couldn't get comics on the newsstand very well. The distribution was too bad. The 80s is one of my favorite periods of Spider-Man history. has a couple of my favorite writers, Roger Stern and Tom DeFalco. Yeah. Talk about those two on the day. Well, Roger Stern started at Marvel two weeks before I did, and so we kind of, you know, we were the new guys, so we kind of fell in together. And um, Roger had never written comics at that point, so, uh, so you know, and he's my friend. So I, I sat him down, and I, I'm trying to give him the lecture and tell, tell him all of the philosophy and, the, you know, the, 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 the real, you know, intricate stuff, and, uh, and he didn't get it. And... <laughs> and uh, and then uh, Len Wein, uh, who deserves great credit, he, uh, 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 he had Roger do a fill-in issue of the Hulk. And because it was Roger's first work, he's telling him, do this, don't do that. I mean, real simple, you know, kept, kept it real basic. Roger did a great job. And then once he got his feet under him a little bit, once he learned sort of the, you know, sort of the boot camp uh, basics... Then he said, "Oh, I see what you mean about you know the conflict and about this and that," and uh, and then he went on to become a tr- tremendous writer. Uh, DeFalco uh, uh, came to us after the DC implosion when everybody came to Marvel because we were the only place to go, and uh, and and so uh, uh, he had been at Archie Comics actually, and Archie was doing a lot, going more and more reprint I think at that point, um, and so. Uh, his first primary value to me seemed to be as an editor because if there's one thing, I mean, I, I Marvel had always been late before, and 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 I was trying to make the trains run on time, if you know what I mean. And um, and Tom seemed to have a good solid footing there. I mean, because the trains always ran at time on time at Archie, so brought him in, and, and indeed he he was very good at that. I mean, I'd go in and I'd say, uh, uh, "Where does it stand on Spider-Man?" He'd say, "I got four issues in the drawer," you know, <laughs> stuff like that. An editor, that's a good thing to hear. Yeah, and and so uh, so then you know he started doing some writing work, and at first I think it was a it was a little tough transition for him, uh, but he you know he, he caught on real well, and and, and he did a, he started doing some really nice stuff. The uh, Amazing 252, the first appearance of the black costume, it was impossible for me to find. That book must have sold my game. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, uh, I couldn't convince anybody at Marvel. I couldn't convince the circulation people. I couldn't convince the PR people that this was going to be a big deal. 
and uh, and I, I went to the PR people. So we should do a press release. They said, no one will care. And I said, they will, you know. And the circulation people said, we ought to up the print run on, on these things. And they're like, they were really afraid of that because, like I said, the newsstand, you know, you, you were not getting, you know, uh, uh, honest uh, sales on the newsstand. And in the direct market, they ordered what they ordered. So you couldn't do much with that. And, I, uh, and yes, and so it was such a sensation. It, it like, sold out immediately. And, and, uh, and we didn't do things like go back to press in those days, uh, only very rarely. And uh, so it, it became kind of, it, it's amazing that a book that had probably had 500,000 copies in print became rare. Yeah, no doubt. Now, the, talk about that origin of the costume idea. From Stories I've heard, and I want you to confirm or deny it, a kid sent in an idea in a letter about the black suit, and you sent him a check for a couple hundred, or I don't know. Yeah, I th- well, what happened was, I mean, I, I read more of the fan mail than I think anybody else in this business ever. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I, I, I couldn't read it all. There's way too much of it. But um, uh, we had um, we had all these high school interns who were just thrilled to work at Marvel Comics. And, you know, you know, you know yeah, go photocopy this, run this down the hall, stuff like that. And yet... They get to meet Walt Simonson. They get to hang out with Bill Sienkiewicz. They get to show their drawings to, you know, John Romita, and and you know, so so they they loved it, and you know, and and uh, so yeah, right. So we had those uh, uh, some of those kids, and I would have them go through the mail, and if there was anything like real interesting, you know, put it in my pile, and and so I read a lot of it. Well, anyway, I, I also read a lot of submissions, and this young man sent in a. Uh, a sample plot. He was trying to get a job as a writer. And the plot was, um, he wasn't ready for prime time. He, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, professional level yet. Uh, and it, the, the, the story in his plot was basically that Reed Richards creates a, a high-tech black costume for Spider-Man. And, and that, that, that was it. I mean, the only thing, the two words that he contributed were black costume. And I thought, yeah, the guy crawls around on the rooftops in the dark. You know, wouldn't you wear a black costume? So, so, uh, so anyway, I called him up and I said, look, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. We'll pay you for this. I think we gave him $500. I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to use it, but, you know, um, I just want, I, I just want to be able to make sure that you're, you're compensated somehow. And anyway, I think then we did give him, we tried to train him. I mean, I think we brought him to New York and, and gave him a shot at uh, trying to uh, become a writer. And he just wasn't ready yet, you know. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, we, we tried to play fair. Uh, so anyway, I threw that thing in the drawer. And I wasn't sure when it would come in handy. And then when we started on Secret Wars, I said, aha, black costume. Talk about Secret Wars. Was it Ma- the Mattel that came up with the idea first, and you, you had to design a story around it, or what? No, what happened was uh, it starts with Kenner Toys okay. licensing the DC heroes. Okay. So Kenner was going to have a line of uh, superhero action figures based on DC characters. Well, Mattel didn't want to be the only giant toy company in town that didn't have uh, superheroes. Say a Masters of the Universe, but what you know, that's younger. So, uh, so they, uh, they, uh, our people were always out there trying to, you know, get licenses and stuff. But anyway, somehow Mattel 
uh, got in touch with us and was interested in our characters. And we had a meeting, and they said that the, 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 the problem with the Marvel characters uh, was that they weren't exposed enough, that, that everyone knows who Superman is, everyone knows who Batman is, everyone knows Wonder Woman, Robin, and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, most people don't know Iron Man at that point, anyway. Uh, Robert yeah. Downey, yeah. Yeah, really. And he's, they said most people don't know who your Thor. And they, they, they said your characters just aren't that well known. And when people license things, they don't license ideas. They license exposure. Nobody licensed Star Wars because they thought it was a good idea. They licensed it because everyone in the world knew Star Wars. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, the thing is, like, they, so we're sitting in a room, this room full of executives, licensing people, president of the company, um, uh, and me, you know. And uh, so the Mattel people said, if you could do some big event, publishing event, that we could, we could get a lot of publicity and we could promote and uh, you could promote and, you know, get some attention for these characters, then, you know, we'd be interested in licensing it. And, and so everybody sort of looks at me like, you know, well, Jim, what are you going to do? You know, what do you got? So I... The fact is that in the fan mail, which I read a lot of, almost every day I'd get an, some letters suggesting, why don't you do one big story with all the major char- characters and uh, all the major heroes, all the major villains together? And I, every time that someone would suggest that, I'd say, oh, that would be a nightmare. You know, but, but then, so I'm sitting there and they're all looking at me and, and I said, why don't we do one big story with all of the you know major heroes and all the major villains in in one story? Make it twelve issues, you know, make it a big deal, you know, and, and publicize publicize and all that. And they said, "Oh, that's brilliant." I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll take that." Yeah. But anyway, uh, it was really suggested in the fan mail all the time, and uh, so Mattel liked it. And then we started working with them, and they did have some things that they asked us to do. They said, "They said, well, we're, this is toys, so we need locations, we need playsets, you know, we need vehicles, uh, we need, uh, you know, we would like you to have Iron Man look uh, uh, more high tech, and and especially uh, for Doctor Doom to become more high tech because they, they said he looked too medieval." And uh, uh, things like that. They wanted you know us to do some active things with the characters, and so I thought about it. I thought I can work that into the story, and it won't even look like something that's bolted on. It'll 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 be seamless in the story. So yeah, I can do that. Yeah. So uh, so then and and that and then we went on from there. And once we got once we satisfied their small issues, uh, and also they had a focus group that came up with the name Secret Wars. That was theirs. I think I started off with Battle World or something. Well, that was in there, too. Oh, really? Anyway, but um, uh, at any rate, uh, they, they, they said that kids responded well. Kids. Uh, people respond well to words secret and, and also, like, Star Wars Wars. And uh, so that they came up with, uh, with that name. Um, but, I mean, once we satisfied their, little, their few little issues, they, they, they never, I never heard from them. As an editor, when you hear that there's going to be all your characters in one book, is that like this is going to sell like gangbusters? Is that well, I, I like printing money? I guess. Well, I, I I figured it would probably yeah. sell pretty well. It was sold better than wildest expectations. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we we figured, you know, especially since it was going to get promotion and there would be toys and we would benefit from the toy promotion, uh, we figured that it would be it would be a hit. Um, but we didn't know how much of a hit until we got those first orders in. Uh, wow! Any idea how many it sold? 
Uh, it was it was up near a million. Yeah. They would they would kill for numbers like that today. Yeah, I mean, you know, but uh, uh, you know, we we had the direct market. We did a good job on the newsstand, and then we had all of these other smaller outlets like the the, the military, and we sold comics through Western Publishing and 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 so forth. So yeah, I mean, we had a, a, a the total sale was really impressive. So Secret Wars two, after that success, we went to Secret Wars two. Memory as a kid, the Beyonder learning how to use the bathroom from Spider Man. You got to tell me about that. Well, I mean, basically, I, tried, I just tried to think it through logically. And he, here's, here's a guy who is almost all-powerful, and he, he comes to Earth, but he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know how to pee. Yeah, he, doesn't, he has no idea. And, and, and I, I really like the idea that, that Peter Parker, who, you know, is probably, you know, more... Yeah, he's like, he's like anybody else, and so he's got to teach this godlike being, you know, like how to go to the bathroom. And, yeah, well, cracked me up, too, and I was writing it. <laughs> Uh, talk about the. I bet you've heard I've, uh, some weird pitches for Spider-Man. I read online. You can uh, see if this is true or not. Matt Lowe wanted to make Spider-Man an illegitimate father. Yes. Is that right? Yes, it was. Yeah, that is true. And and uh, you know, and this is this is part of the problem being editor in chief. I mean, you know, creative people come up with a lot of ideas, and some of them are bad. And uh, so uh, Bill told his editor, I think it was Danny Fingeroth, that he wanted to do this story where Spider-Man fathers an illegitimate child. And uh, and Danny said no, you know. And then Bill kind of went over his head. Well, he actually, with Danny's permission, went over his head and, and came to me and, and said, uh, you know, I want to do this story. And I said, you, you don't understand, Bill. You know, we sell these comics on a spinner rack that says, hey, kids, wholesome entertainment. I said, they have the comics code seal on them. Still, at that point, I said, whether you like it or not, this is, these are facts. I said, and we have a contract with Union Underwear that makes Spider-Man underoos that says we won't do that. You know, and, and, and all these other, you know, things. I said, you know, I think we should do the most sophisticated stories we can, but we have to stay within certain bounds because we're contractually obligated. And also... They hired me to protect these characters, to protect these franchises, and you're not going to do that to Spider-Man. I said, do it in Epic Comics. Do exactly the same story. Call him Arachnid Man. I don't care if he's red and blue. Do, do whatever you want. Everybody will secretly know it's Spider-Man, but, but, but you know, you can't do it in, in, in the mainstream Spider-Man any, books. Any other bad ideas that came across your desk? Oh, lots of bad ideas. <laughs> I mean, first of all, every time you get a new writer, the first thing they want to do is kill Aunt May. And I said, you know, ha- wait till your, you know, 50th book and kill Aunt May. I mean, you know, once you get in there, you know, that, that's different. But, but uh, you know, it's like anybody can go. Everybody wanted to go for the cheap drama, you know. And I, I said, no. How about coming up with a good story? How's that? Good idea. Distribution in the 80s, you, everywhere you went, you ran into a comic. They were on spinner racks. They were in bookstores. Uh, now you have to search out a comic almost. What do you think of the distribution nowadays with comics? I think it's terrible. I mean, I think what, what happened was when we were with the newsstand only, I told you what happened. I mean, it, they, they ruled us, and they cheated us. And, uh, and so then the, the direct market arose. And for a while, we had both. And the newsstand guys, to some extent, didn't want to be, you know, have their, their little profit center taken away by the direct market. So, they, actually, newsstand sales sort of stabilized. And, 
and uh, they were afraid to cheat us too much because, for instance, we were actually getting negative percentage sell-through from Cleveland. Okay, from the distributor in Cleveland, we were we were selling minus four percent. You know, it's like how do you sell? How do you get returns larger than what you sent them? Did the truck crash on the way to the store? Or something. I don't know. Anyway, the thing is, like, what we surmised is that, and what they said was that the direct market stores would return comics through the ID wholesaler, and that's why we were getting negative percentages, but they still wanted their check. And, and so we, we, we made history. Uh, I talked to Ed Shukin and talked him into it. He was a circulation guy. I said, let's cut off Cleveland. Let's stop dealing with, with the Cleveland ID. So we did. And I think other IDs noticed that. There was a time when, you know, leg breakers would have showed up to, you know. But, but other IDs noticed that, and they didn't want to be cut off. And, and so, uh, you know, we were able to, like, use both. We had both, and, and therefore neither one could really hurt us. And then uh, during the time I was there, the direct market was so successful that uh, Carol Kalish, Ed Shukin, and other people, they, they, uh, they wanted to go all direct. And I kept saying, no, no, it, the, the newsstand, we have 70,000 outlets on the newsstand. That's, that's the bait. You know, uh, a, a, a reader goes and they, they, maybe they, they discover the comic book because they see, they walk past the spinner rack and they see uh, G.I. Joe or Star Wars. And they know that. And they say, wow, let me try this. And they, and they read it. And, and meanwhile, there's a real interesting Iron Man cover right next to it. But maybe they pick that up too. Or Superman. Or Superman. Or anything. You know, just for the industry. And uh, and so so I said that then if they really get interested and they want that next issue of GI Joe and the distribution is spotty on the newsstand, they'll find a comic book shop, and then we got them. And you see, I was uh, I'm 40 now, and you got me with Secret Wars. I went to the comics shop off the spinner rack. I went went looking for comics. What? How do we fix it now? Well, I think they. I think that. Well, you know, like I said, uh, the, the powers at Marvel always wanted to started leaning toward all direct, which was, in their words, shooting fish in a barrel. Okay, and uh, so uh, and I always resisted. I mean, I even I even proposed that we had done direct market exclusive comics. The first one was Dazzler, and it sold it sold four hundred twenty eight thousand copies all direct. Uh, so I said, let's do an all all exclusive newsstand book. And I couldn't win that fight because because Ed Shukin and Carol Kalish said, oh, no, they'd be so mad. I said, yeah. And then they'd go to the newsstand and buy the books, you know, and or they'd go to the ID and buy them at a discount. But, uh, you know, and then they'd be mad for a while. And then and then that comic book would go up in value and all the store owners would be glad. And, you know, I said, you know, but I couldn't win that fight. And, and then shortly after I left Marvel, not too long after I left Marvel, they abandoned the newsstand and they went all direct. And guess what? The direct market, yeah, it, it just started killing them because they had they, they were the only way out. They had all the cards. So anyway, the, the thing was, um, it, this this business has almost gone out of business uh, uh, three times in my career. I was sitting, t- I had lunch with Will Eisner years ago, and and I was I was telling him that I said, you know, the business has almost died, you know, three times since I've been in it. He said. Eight times since I've been in it. And I said, well, you know, it just seems to me, Will, that every time it gets to the brink, two things happen. There's a revolution in distribution, and there's some creative surge. 
like like let's take the 1961 for instance you know uh, uh, yes Stan and Jack and Steve you know the creative brilliance that was the creative surge and at, at the same time Martin Goodman got distribution through the same distributor that DC used so he had reasonably decent distribution and uh, so I'm you know and then you know in the uh, late 70s when I when I was editor-in-chief uh, we uh, we had the direct market arise so there was a, tr- a, a revolution in distribution and at Marvel and, and, and DC as well uh, started introducing all these incentives started paying people more better people stayed with us uh, better people came to us people who had left to go to do more uh, profitable things like advertising came back to us and all of a sudden you look around and there's there's Bill Sienkiewicz and Walt Simonson and Archie Goodwin and Larry Hama and like who's who of, of, of creators and, and you know so there was your creative thrust you know and uh, uh, so that happened I think we need the same thing now I, I think that electronic distribution is still evolving maybe that's it they say that's the new news state yeah maybe that's it and uh, and it, it needs to be perfected however there's too much piracy there's you know too much uh, I wonder why the uh, dig- well it's to save the co- local comic shops but should a digital book be 399 and a paper book be 399 uh I don't know. I, I think that uh, I think that you, you probably would want the one that has the greatest reach to be a little less expensive. Uh, last one I've got is about the marriage of Spider-Man and Mary Jane. That was under your watch. Talk about that. The idea to marry the two. Well, uh, I was at a convention in Chicago, uh, 1985, maybe I guess. I don't know. Anyway, uh, a convention in Chicago, and Stan was there as well, and. Uh, so, walking down the hall, and Stan was scheduled to do a one-man panel, just him. And he sees me, and he runs over to me, he says, oh, you got to help me. And I'm like, what? And he said, he said I'm going to be on this one-man, you know, uh, on stage, one-man panel. He said, uh, he said, and I know what they're going to do. They're going to ask me questions about the comics, and I'm not up to date on the comics. Because he was out in Hollywood at that point, you know, working on, yeah, and, and also working at Marvel Productions and so forth. He says, come on and do it with me. And I said, well, all right, you know, I said, you think they'll mind? He says, they're going to tell us no, you know. And I, I, I said, you know, I said, okay, we'll do it. So we went up there and we made a great tag team because all the questions were about comics, okay? What was going on in the comics? So I would answer the fact part of the question and then Stan would tell some anecdote about, you know, like Thor. Yeah, he'd be Stan. And we, we had a great act there. We were doing great. And uh, was the straight man. Were you the straight man? Well, I was the straight man. Okay. You know, and Stan would do all the, all the, you know, or except sometimes I'd throw in a funny comment on one of his anecdotes. But uh, at any rate, uh, so to get to the end, they were taking some questions and right at the end, somebody raises their hand and the, and the question was, Stan, when is Peter Parker going to get married to Mary Jane, right? And Stan said, well, he said, you know, I'm not involved with the comics so much anymore. That's entirely up to Jim. Well, Jim, can we do it? You know, and he, like, puts me on the spot right there. He says, can, Stan is asking me, you know, could, could we please have them get married? Well, what am I going to say to Stan Lee? You know, no, you jerk. You know, I mean, so, so I, I said, well, uh, if, you're, if you're willing, I said, we could do it together. You could do it in the syndicated strip and we could do it, you know, in the comics at the same time. And the 
roar of applause in the room, and Stan shakes my hand, and, and then we started doing it. Now, we really wanted to coordinate the strip and the uh, comics, and for a lot of logistical reasons, that, that, was, that didn't quite work out. But, uh, but they, he got married in both venues. <laughs> <laughs> and it came out all right. And in the ballpark, too. Yes, at Shea Stadium. And, and uh, yeah. It was a- Some people that aren't a fan of the marriage say the two weren't right for each other. Gwen was the true love. What's your opinion? Um, well, I kind of agree. And the thing is, I, that's the, something I liked about Marvel Comics is that, um, you know, when I would read DC Comics way back in the, you know, late 50s, early 60s, um, pretty much like, you know, the first issue of every comic, the hero's already met the love of his life, you know, there's the there's the, the, the hero, there's Iris West, there's you know you know, and so forth. And uh, and there's never any problems about that, except that you know uh, the uh, what's his name, the Flash guy was always late for everything, you know, you know. I mean, they they were like gimmicks, you know, gimmicky stuff. And when Peter Parker starts out, he doesn't have any girlfriend at all, and then he meets Betty Brand. That doesn't work out, and you know, I mean, it's like life, you know. And and uh, the fact that uh, the the love of his life died, well, what's he going to do? He's going to go on, and here's here's uh, Mary Jane Tiger. So you know. Anyway, I, so I thought I thought that was okay. I was all right with that. But, but the, to go to the thing about what Matlow said, do you think that changed the character too much? Took him from the everyman to uh, well, people assume that once you get married, everything's blissful. Right. But I mean, he didn't have the romantic tension. What do you think? Did it change the character too much? Well, it didn't have to. I think to some extent it did, and it shouldn't have. But because I think that. Uh, a good writer takes that, and, and it, it's a it's a shift in the dynamic, but there's still plenty of material to work with there, and uh, so I think that uh, it, it it probably flummoxed the writers a little, but uh, I think if if they had done it right, I left at about that time. I wasn't involved, so I think if if they they should have called me, I would have told them what to do. Well, years later, he made a deal with the devil, and they undid the marriage. What do you think of that? I think that sucks. Exactly. I agree. <laughs> no, I think, you know, when, once you start to pulling tricks like that, then you, you can't believe anything. I mean, I had a rule that when a character died, they stayed dead. And in two, on two occasions, I allowed that rule to be semi-violated. One was with Electra Assassin. And uh, Frank and Denny wanted to bring her back, and I said no. And they said, well, here's how we intend, we'd intend. we like to do it. And they explained this whole thing about other people giving up their lives and kind of reanimating her. And you're never quite sure if it's really her in there. Yeah. And I said, you know, yeah. I can live with that. Yeah. All right. And then uh, with, the, with Phoenix, they convinced me, Jean Grey is dead, but Phoenix isn't. And, you know, all right, Phoenix. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. okay so when, when, when Phoenix came back, it wasn't Jean Grey. So... That's how they sold that to me. I said, "All right, as long as Jean Grey stays dead, I'm all right with that." You know, and the character's name is Phoenix, so rising again is nothing unusual. All right, we've got a, a couple questions from our message board. Big Al, uh, I believe your EIC tenure was the best era Marvel ever had. Just want to throw that out there. Uh, were you in charge now? What would you do differently than what Marvel's doing now? First of all, I I would once again try to get things to be to come out on time on a regular basis i think that's very important i would i would get ahead enough on the book so we didn't have that possibility of of uh, you know missing an issue or something uh, or it being delayed 
Um, I understand that Marvel has some pretty strict restraints on, uh, you know, uh, uh, live inventory, meaning they can't have four in the drawer like like Defalco used to have. Uh, yeah, no, not fill-ins. Four issues in the drawer, four issues ahead. You know, not fill-ins. Regular continuity, and um, uh, so I would try to get the thing on time, and I would also try to get them back to. Uh, storytelling nowadays with Marvel Comics being what four dollars, and you know, and and they're doing this this decompressed storytelling where, you know, I mean, I started reading the new Miles Morales uh, Spider-Man, and at the end of three issues, he still wasn't in the costume, you know, and and every cover had him in the costume, but in the, the issues, you know, he was still just discovering that he could stick to walls and stuff. You're out twelve bucks. You're out twelve bucks, and how many? You know, you could be out fifty dollars, forty-eight dollars before you get to the you know the end of that first story, that first you know that stand did in two pages. Now I'm not saying it should be done in two pages, but I I mean if you read those old comics or if you even read the stuff that it, and I did at Valiant, which I was trying to be like Stan in terms of having a, a good bit of content in each issue. Um, you know, I mean, when I put down a Marvel comic in, in the in the middle '60s, there, I felt like I'd been to a fantastic movie. I mean, there was a great story, and there was lots of it, and and it didn't seem crowded. It's because you know the, they knew how to pace, and I think these days the guy's uh, pace is kind of glacial, and I think that hurts them. You know, so I try to you know get back to telling stories, telling well, and and you know making them on time, and and trying to get people interested in the characters again as opposed to the gimmicks and the reboots and all that there's more than just comics nowadays they've got the movies they've got the toys etc they're they're competing for what medium i guess see it shouldn't it shouldn't be that way i mean like when 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 uh star wars was a huge hit movie uh are the sales of star wars comics and everything everything else star wars where they skyrocketed uh when the when the incredible hulk was on tv with Lou Ferrigno, uh, it, it boosted the Hulk sales tremendously. Now the movies have no impact on the sales of the comics. Why? Because the comics really aren't like the movies, are they? I mean, you go to the movie, it, it's exciting. It's it's complex. It's not complicated, not confusing. It's complex. It's interesting, you, and you, you walk out of there feeling you've you've been told this great story, this and and, and a very intricate and beautiful story, and. Uh, you know, whereas you're you're still on uh, you're still you know you're you're ten issues into the Miles Morales and you haven't seen him uh, you know put a suit on yet. We've got Aziz. Uh, what what uh, Marvel team up one twenty six? Spider Man hands Bruce Banner money and then the Hulk gives it to another one in need. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Uh, uh, He's a hero. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think I called that the five dollar bill, and it was. Uh, It, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was an ironic play that you can't give more than all, you know. And sometimes some little boost, um, you know, yeah, turn your life around, uh, help you, uh, and that that was that was the idea behind that story. I, you know, I, I, it was a short story, right? It was like a half comic, I think. It was split with Son of Satan, I think, or something. Zonathan. Uh, being responsible for Secret Wars, how do you feel about modern, soulless comic book co- crossover events? Well, I think, you know, Secret Wars was such a success. You know, next thing you know, DC's doing Crisis. And, uh, oh, they claim they thought of it first. 
uh, geez, their first issue came out the same day my last issue came out, and uh, you know, and it, but then the, the the crossovers every summer, every company had to do these giant crossovers. The, the only thing is, I, I think that they have become kind of soulless because Secret Wars was integral to the Marvel universe. I mean, that you got the issue out and you had to read the whole mini to find out why Spider-Man got a black suit, why the Hulk did this. And yet, if you just picked up the Spider-Man, the first issue of Spider-Man that had the black suit, it didn't confuse you. You realized he had been away someplace, some alien world, and, and he, he came back with this new suit. Well, you know, I mean, okay, I can understand that. That's all you need to know. But, but uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to see the story that happened on the alien world? Perfect. Make you buy two books. Well, I mean, or make you interested in the limited uh, series that, that you otherwise might ignore. And, and so we tried to make it integral, integral to the Marvel Universe, you know, important to the Marvel Universe, part of the Marvel Universe. The st- the, all the Marvel books ended with these, uh, on, in December with these characters being taken away somewhere. All the books in January had them coming back, and but some of them had differences. Some of them had been changed. Some of them did, one of them didn't come back. And, and so forth. And, and, and so we, we made it something that was part of the continuity. Other people didn't want to work that hard, and f- frankly. And that's, that's really it. Other people didn't want to work that hard. So they do this crossovers, and it really had nothing to do with the continuity. And it, it was completely detachable. And, you know, it just didn't matter. And if actually you tried to make it matter, you'd just find it didn't make any sense at all. Uh, biggest frontier, uh, biggest accomplishment as the editor at Marvel Comics? I think making things more fair for the creators. I couldn't, uh, I mean, Marvel, they own the characters. They were not going to back down on it being work for hire. And I said, well, then let's make it fair. It doesn't have to be bad work for hire. Let's make it fair work for hire. So we doubled the rates, and we doubled them again, and we kept raising the rates. Uh, we we uh, introduced uh, the, the first a, what I called a continuity bonus. If you did so many issues in a row, you got five hundred dollars. You kept doing, you kept getting the five hundred dollars every I don't know how many issues. Uh, we introduced the uh, royalty program, and some of these guys became millionaires off of that royalty program. Todd McFarlane, one of them. Um, uh, we we introduced uh, 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 health insurance for freelancers, and that's you know if you did three jobs a year, so you made seventy five hundred dollars, you qualified, and you had really good health care coverage. If uh, we introduced life insurance, which came in very handy for Gene Day's family, you know, and uh, we we if, again all you had to do was do about three jobs a year, and you were covered. Um, then I said it's work for hire. And so, therefore, part of the definition of work for hire is that the, is that the uh, work for hire employee does not provide the materials. And so we started providing, uh, we used to always provide paper, of course. We, used to, we started providing pens, inks, uh, pencils, erasers, whiteout. Uh, we paid for postage. We paid for all shipping. Uh, if I asked a guy to come to the office, we paid his train fare. Uh, we 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 made it like okay, it's work for hire. We own everything, but you're not. It's not going to be a, you know bad. Yeah, it's not going to be out of your pocket. It's not like you're bringing the leather to, leather to the shoe factory and then they own the shoes. You know, it's it's. Uh, it, it, we tried to make it good and fair, and and also then we tried to offer the alternative. Yeah, you can work on Spider-Man, and that's guaranteed. You're going to make a lot of money, and you're going to have all these nice benefits and stuff. Or you can go work for Epic Comics, and you can bet on yourself. You own it, and it's all yours. 
but y- y- it's not Spider-Man. It doesn't have that built-in sales appeal. You have to. It has. You better be good. You better be good. And that worked out for like Jim Starlin with Dreadstar and some of the others, and some didn't work out. Last question: Any any Di- Steve Ditko stories you can tell us? Steve Ditko. Uh, uh, I met him uh, back uh, during the Marvel days somewhere. I think I met him when they, uh, Neil Adams was trying to organize the guild because Steve, Steve came to some of those meetings. And for, for reasons that are mysterious to me, I was invited. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I'm a management. You know, what am I doing here with you guys are starting a f- former union? But Neil kept insisting. Neil and I are buddies. I mean, even through all of that. He was inviting me to his parties, and we're we're still friends. So I go over and get yelled at by him every once in a while. And, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, uh, so uh, I met him, and uh, you know, when I talked to him, I said, "Geez, you know, I'd love to have you come back. Your door, the door is always open." No, 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 no. You know, but eventually, he actually showed up, and uh, well, he showed up, and and we started talking. And eventually, uh, he started doing some things for us, and Rom, Rom primarily, and and he he seemed to be happy with that. He did great work, and uh, uh, we were just thrilled to have him back. And uh, just wish I could have done that with everybody. I wish I could have done it with Jack. I wish I could have done it with uh, with anyone else. But but uh, uh, from the old you know old days. But but then you know after I left Marvel, they stopped using him. And so I started a new company, Valiant, and he turned up on my doorstep one day and, you know, was kind of looking for work. And we were doing wrestling comics then, not my idea. Uh, but, but I said, but Steve likes pure good guys and pure bad guys. And so that's, there's wrestling for you, you know. And, yeah. so, so he actually enjoyed, I think, doing some of the wrestling stories. He did a great job, terrific job. And then uh, um, uh, uh, later at Valiant, uh, when we finally got around to doing My Superheroes, which is what I wanted to do in the first place, and got kind of torn off track by uh, the board of directors, um, uh, then he, he did Magnus for us for a while, because I convinced him that Magnus is a good guy, you know? And he's all right, I'll do, I'll do that. And we had Ralph Reese inking him, and God, it looked great. It was terrific. Anyway, so so I, I've known him for a long time, and and uh, he's he's very very fussy about what he does. He's got he's a man of principle. He used to come into the office and say, "Hey, Steve, can I get you a cup of coffee?" He'd say, "No, production before consumption." It's just a different cat, but a genius. Oh no, he's I, I total respect for him. He, he's he's he is a genius. Uh, his old Spider-Man stuff taught me how to tell stories, and then get, probably helped me get get my first job because I, I studied his stuff and Jack's. And uh, you know, I, I just total respect for him and just uh, uh, admire the man. And, and uh, she would do interviews. I've interviewed Stan. I haven't interviewed the other father. He, he doesn't. He doesn't like to. He, he, we had a at, at Valiant. We were having. We had trouble getting people because. We didn't have that much money, and so we couldn't afford the Jim Lees of the world, you know. Uh, so what we ended up with was uh, we had a couple decent guys. We had uh, um, we had uh, decent. We had a couple really good guys. Barry Windsor Smith, uh, you know. We had Don Perlin, who is, it just doesn't get nearly the credit he deserves. Um, and uh, and then we had David Lapham, who was like a discovery. You know, he was delivering papers, newspapers, when we found him, and uh, uh, found him. And he kept sending us samples. But uh, 
then we had a bunch of kids like right out of the Cubert school, and you had to show them which end of the brush to hold. You know, that green. Yeah, really. But on the other hand, I'd say this for the Cubert school: every one of those kids had a total professional attitude. You ask them to do something, they said yes, sir, and they did it to the best of their abilities. They listened, they took direction, they they all got better. Some of them became superstars. Um, so anyway, uh, and then we had old guys that nobody wanted. Now I'm an old guy now; nobody wants me, so I can relate. But but uh, we had these old guys who sh- turned up, and uh, like Stan Drake, nobody wanted Stan Drake. Are you kidding me? And and and, and John Dixon, Australian artist, and he came over here hoping to get work. You know, nobody wanted him. Well, we'll take you. And, uh, and so we had and there had Steve Ditko, and uh, anyway, we had all these old guys. So one day, um, uh, we decided to have old guy day. And, and so we had a, uh, I paid for it, we had a catered lunch, you know, and, and we asked everybody to come in. And Stan Drake said he, said he couldn't take the time. He had, he had all this stuff he had to accomplish. And um, I said, well, you take lunch, don't you? And he said, he said, he said, he said, yeah. I said, what if I have a car waiting at your door? And it brings you here, you eat lunch with us, and it takes you home, and maybe you'll lose, you know, 40 minutes. Yeah, he said, all right, I'll do that. So uh, so he came down, and we're all there, and we're having a ball, and all these old guys. It turned out that Stan Drake was John Dixon's hero, and he'd never met him. And, and you know, everybody was just thrilled to meet Steve, and everybody's having a great time. And the, and the, the Cubies, another thing about the Cubert school guys, total respect for their elders. They were just walking around with eyes like saucers, talking to these guys and, and, and listening to their stories and stuff. And um, we had a lousy catered lunch. And, and then, uh, 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 so anyway, then they, everybody wants to take pictures. Steve would not allow us to take his picture. And he kept saying, he says, it's about the work. It's not about me. I'm not going to do interviews. I'm not going to, don't you dare take my picture. I said, Steve, this is me. I'm not going to take your picture. You know, no way. And uh, so we, we couldn't take a picture of him, and it's very sad. Uh, what, what can we look forward to in the future from you? What are you working on these days? Well, I've been doing uh, uh, advertising stuff, uh, commercial comics, you know, for, for a while. Uh, I'm also, uh, you know, I'm not, I pick and choose. I don't, I don't do that much. Um, I, I, I'm not doing anything mainstream right now, but uh, I've got a couple conversations underway let's say and and so you know something may come along and if it if it's really interesting i'd i really like to to do you know i enjoyed your in there oh yeah www.jimshooter.com you gotta type the three w's and uh yeah there's all kinds of old stories and stuff on there and i might start that again jim it was a pleasure and an honor very nice to talk to you thank you sir thank you